Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Victory Kitchen. Today's episode is entitled Vegetables for Vitality for Victory. First, I wanted to talk about something exciting. In the midst of my research on Victory Gardens, I ran across Julie Zuckerman's article on the Jewish Women's Archive website. It was entitled Seeds of Sustenance, Pandemic Victory Gardens. And in this article, she compares Victory Garden movement of World War II to today's pandemic gardening wave. So I was really privileged to be able to interview her. And I've got that interview up on my podcast blog. And you can check that out at victorykitchenpodcast.com. Now, if you uh, listened to the last episode, I was very perplexed at the end when uh, I was reading about the story of the preacher and his garden, his Victory Garden and how he could possibly be growing mangoes in Indiana. I was just mystified. Uh, I was, I'm very grateful that one of my listeners on Instagram, Max Snacks, uh, shared with me an online article from the Indy Star. Indy, for those of you that don't know, is short, is our nickname for Indianapolis, which is my hometown. That article talks about this Midwest phenomenon of quote-unquote mangoes. I'm so glad they sent this to me because (laughs) it's just such a mystery. But apparently, mangoes are green peppers. Who knew, right? So um, in this article, it says, food historian Karen Hess and author of Martha Washington's Book of Cookery said that in 18th century... England, there was a demand for Indian-style pickles, like fruit mangoes, stuffed with spices and kept in a vinegar brine. Mangoes weren't available in England, so they used substitutes such as green peppers. By way of English cookbooks printed in America, the recipe for stuffed mangoes using peppers spread across America. Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Indiana used the dual name, possibly because of the large Amish settlements who were fond of pickling in those states. As time passed, even unstuffed peppers continued to be called mangoes. So technically, it's not our fault, but rather the British. (laughs) Sorry, British friends. (laughs) It's your fault. Um, Yeah, growing up, I don't remember ever hearing them called that. But um, the article also says that um, this is not to say that all Hoosiers refer to them this way. It's a generational and even a geographic phenomenon. Grocery stores try to appease both camps by advertising green mango peppers. So very interesting bit of food history for you there. Um, If you'd like to um, read the entire article, I'll have it in the resources um, at the bottom of the post corresponding with this episode. All right, so I have been very excited about this part of the Victory Garden discussion because this is where we get into like the nitty gritty stuff of what do we put in this garden? So yeah, what do we plant? Now, there's this image that I see floating around on the internet all the time. And it is a picture entitled A Victory Garden for a Family of Five. And it was issued by the Illinois State Council of Defense. And what it is, it's a diagram. It's got a little V um, picture with a a gardener, like, putting in his garden rake into the dirt. And then it's got the whole victory garden planned out, every row. And it even has, like, subsequent planting. So... The very back row says onions, followed by leaf lettuce, head lettuce, followed by spinach, beets, followed by collards. Um, And then it even has the space between each row. So like 30 inches or 12 inches, 18 inches. It is such a detailed, I don't know, for, for those of us that love like super organized 
garden plans, this is like the epitome. It's on a plot that's 25 by 50. And I'm thinking about my current garden. I think it's about 16 by 50. No, that's really narrow. Maybe it maybe it is about this size. So theoretically, um, well, you know, that was before we put the chicken coop in. So my garden's a lot smaller now. But um, but before the chicken coop was there, I think I could have planted this very garden. I'm going to have this image on my blog so you can see. Um, I'm sure you'll recognize it once you see it. But um, there are, I ran across quite a few of these images um, in my research. Some in some garden books and some online. And um, I just love looking at them. And I think the gardeners in us um, love looking at these too. We just dream. It's it's a good wintertime activity. So we can drool over them as we're getting into the the fall and winter season here. So the people who were encouraging Americans to plant gardens, you know, the government... Um, what were they telling Americans to plant? In some articles that I read, they had different advice. Some, uh, one said that um, to plant according to your family's tastes. Well, that's pretty obvious, right? But to get into specifics, they really wanted you to focus on nutrition. So green leafy vegetables, tomatoes and beans, beets, carrots, onions, parsnips, and salsify which can be left in the ground all winter. There's some plants you can do that with. I've heard even you can do that with the carrots. Um, Cabbage, potatoes, sweet potatoes, potatoes and sweet corn are better suited for larger gardens. Oh, so those last three, sweet potatoes, potatoes and sweet corn are better suited for larger gardens. And that's recommended for gardens a quarter acre or more, just because they do take up a lot of space. Green and yellow vegetables were especially emphasized. More than just planting a garden, you were planting nutrition at your kitchen door. After all, a healthy population was a working and happy population. And we've talked about this before. The health of the population was like really top of the list because if you're healthy, you're working um, and your morale is probably higher up there too. Other things that were recommended were fruits like strawberries and raspberries, leaf lettuce, and leaf lettuce was valued more than head lettuce for use in salad because of nutrition. Now, this is an interesting side note that some seeds were used for consumption as food like peas, beans, and lentils. And these were rationed, which got tricky for those wanting to plant them for their garden. So in March of 1943, the OPA working in conjunction with the Department of Agriculture, created an exemption. Rationing was lifted for peas, beans, and lentils when they were bought exclusively as seeds for planting. So that's really interesting. I guess we don't really think about that aspect of rationing, that there might have been a shortage of seeds. I also came across an article in the May 1942 McCall's Magazine that discussed that since spices were scarce... Um, to grow herbs and it has a suggestion of getting one of these old wagon wheels and planting a different herb in between each spoke of the wheel and um, I thought that was a really cool idea that's another thing that I guess doesn't really get talked about with rationing is that a lot of spices we imported um, you know things like cinnamon vanilla and things like that if we weren't getting shipments in there was going to be a shortage of spices Now, all the ration recipes that I've seen, they use spices. So I'm sure they're available on some scale, but um, that they were, like this uh, article said, that they were scarce. Now, the Victory Garden was a huge support for rationing. The more that you grew, the less you had to worry about finding at the store. And in the February 8th, 1943 Time magazine, It says, quote, the agriculture department hopes that because of Victory Gardens, as many as 18 million of them, food rationing will have much less sting this summer. The department emphasizes that gardening is work as well as fun, requires sound planning as well as patriotism. For all their precautions, though, 1943's Victory Gardens will still produce many a laugh for professional farmers. One Dallas newsman bought a pound of turnip seed, enough for an acre, 
for his modest backyard. Seed companies have received dozens of inquiries for coffee seed, even got one request for succotash seed. (laughs) I think this is a great demonstration of how many people were doing their best to be patriotic, doing their part by planting a victory garden, but really they had no idea (laughs) what they were doing. Oh, I love that. Succotash seed. Succotash is um, a dish that's mostly sweet corn, but it's mixed with things like lima beans and other shell beans. And sometimes you can add other ingredients like corned beef or potatoes, turnips, salt, pork, tomatoes, multicolored sweet peppers and okra. Like it just depends on probably the region and, um, you know, what they like to put in it. And this is usually considered, I guess, a Southern dish. Um, but I've seen it served at like buffets at the county fair and stuff like that. So it's pretty popular. But there are no seeds for succotash unless, I mean, you. I guess you could just kind of plant a mixture right there and it all grows together. <laughs> you could plant a succotash garden if you really wanted to, but it doesn't come as a mix in a garden seed packet. <laughs> That's for sure. Okay, so what tools were needed? Like, what did they consider essential garden tools? And I was interested in this because, you know, there's all kind of fancy garden tools out there. And apparently back then, too, they had some all kinds of fancy stuff that you could get. But for a small garden, they suggested a spade or spading fork, a steel rake, a regular common hoe, and a strong cord. And this was for aiding in planting straight rows. I probably should get some of that for myself (laughs) because I usually don't bother. But really, if you want a neat, tidy looking garden, then um, using that strong cord for planting your straight rows is the way to go. They also say that a trowel was handy, but not necessary. Also, a wheelbarrow is very handy. In a newspaper article entitled Backyard is Victory Gardener's Homefront. This is from the Kingsbury Recorder. It says that, quote, it is always pleasing and sometimes helpful to own a great variety of garden tools, plain and fancy. However, a large assortment is not necessary and very simple tools may do quite as good work as fancy or elaborate gadgets. During wartime, gardeners are reminded metals and tools are scarce. They are thus advised to buy only their minimum needs, close quote. So, That's another good point to make that, you know, metal was scarce and to just buy the bare minimum of tools that you required for your size of garden. Garden cultivators and wheel hoes were great labor savers, but they were not essential for small gardens. And I, I actually bought a wheel hoe this year because I was seeing diagrams of them in my um, Victory Garden um, books and I really have been wanting to try them out. I really like the idea of a hand plow is another word for it because uh, we don't have any fancy or (laughs) heavy duty um, gardening equipment like a tiller. So we got one this year. It's a double wheeled hoe and um, it is a very cool thing. I felt very old timey using it. They've been around for quite some time and, um, <laughs> but dang, it's hard work. <laughs> Obviously, cause there's not a horse or even a, a goat pulling it for me. <laughs> so yeah, really working those muscles, but it does a fantastic job. Like it's really great uh, tool to have around, but really it's, it's not necessary uh, for a small garden. Another thing they suggested was helpful was the garden hose. If there's running water available, a garden hose is very useful in um, staving off the drought. Um, In many regions, every householder has been advised to have a hose available anyway as a means of handling emergencies threatened by incendiary bombings. So that's another suggestion, they say. (laughs) It's good to have a garden hose on hand because, um, I mean, that was a real fear, um, especially on the coasts that they were going to be bombed. So having that hose available to put out any fires was a good plan. And that's something we don't really think about either. I mean, we know that England got a huge brunt of the bombing and the U.S. didn't get what they expected. So 
Um, it's just interesting to see, especially early in the war, some of the things uh, that they're suggesting people do to protect their homes, have bomb shelters, even um, in America. So very interesting topic to study. Okay, another thing they suggest are cotton plant covers to keep off frost and bugs. This one really fascinated me because I planted my tomato seedlings, I think in May, mid-May, which is when you're supposed to, but we got some late frosts and um, I just had plastic, but plastic is the worst because it just keeps moisture in and then it condensates on the plastic and then freezes and your plants are doomed anyway. <laughs> so when they say cotton plant covers, I was just like, oh, yeah, that makes more sense. It's breathable. <laughs> you know, you'd think I have not been gardening ever, but, and I have, I have been, but um, there's so much I don't know. And so I've actually been learning so much. These cotton plant covers could look like little tents. They also suggested that wheelbarrows or cultivators could be shared by a neighborhood. So share the wheel tool plan. Also something that could be shared between families and the community are sprayers for combating insects and disease. I've got this awesome article in Life magazine that is very detailed about all these things that this one particular woman does to get her victory garden um, started and protected. And it shows her in one of the pictures, um, her spraying her little seedlings to keep um, insects away. So I, I'll definitely have pictures of that article on my blog because I just like seeing all that stuff, <laughs> like all the behind the scenes of Victory Gardens. I just feel like the same images kind of float around out there, but nothing super specific. So this, this has been very exciting. There were a lot of garden helps out there for Americans that wanted to be successful in their Victory Gardens. And that's really what they wanted was they wanted citizens to be successful in their gardening. So there were a lot of helps out there. Um, the biggest one was county extension agents. I myself have used the county extension services and they are just as much help now as they were back then. They're really the go-to people if you've got questions about gardening. And there's they usually have master gardeners on staff. So that's you know, a really great resource that's free that, you know, anyone can access. And they did that back then as well. They also had literature, of course, gardening magazines, gardening books. In fact, I found a list in one of the articles that lists like the books you'd want to check out to help you with your victory gardens. The first one is The Practical Encyclopedia of Gardening by Norman Taylor. Second is Garden Guide, an Amateur Gardens Handbook, The Food Garden by Lawrence and Edna Blair, Vegetable Gardening in Color by Daniel J. Foley, and some other books, Vegetable Growing Business, Pruning Trees and Shrubs, Rose Garden Primer, Our Shade Trees, Gardens for Victory, Landscaping the Home, Garden Flowers in Color, Our Nation's Cacti, Garden Bulbs in Color, Five Acres and Independence. So this list I found in the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle in February of 1943. This list of books, it seems kind of random and some of them don't have anything to do with food, but we will be getting into that about why this list is really important. Next, another really great resource were garden clubs. I found um, some articles about the Boston Globe Victory Garden Club it was open to men, women, and children living in or around the greater Boston area who were planning to plant or help plant, cultivate, or help cultivate a 1943 Victory Garden. And with the membership, you got a card, and that card could get you entry into the Fenway, where the Boston Globe's four model Victory Gardens were planted and cultivated. So they had these model gardens that you could go and see and get some inspiration from, which I think is really cool. I haven't found photographs of these, but I'm sure in um, Boston newspapers or documents there that there are pictures. Also with the membership, it you could enter produce you raised into the Boston Globe Victory Garden Country Fair with prizes of victory bonds and war savings stamps. 
The membership card also served as ticket admission to the Victory Garden Country Fair. So that's really cool. These garden clubs, they sound like really encouraging. And, um, you know, you could gather with like-minded people who love gardening and just wanted to get that extra help for planting their own Victory Garden. Another form of help for gardeners or or would-be gardeners were pamphlets. You can find so many of these on Wikimedia Commons. I found countless numbers of them. I was so surprised by how much. It was kind of staggering. In last episode's blog post, I have the bulk of the resources that I used for my research. And there are quite a few booklets in there that you can go and look at the PDFs um, of these pamphlets. There's lots of awesome information in them. And a lot of these booklets came from, or pamphlets, came from extension services um, or colleges of agriculture. Many newspapers and magazines had gardening columns. Uh, I can attest for this in the Farm Journal and Farmer's Wife magazine. There is a hefty garden column in there. Newspaper gardening ads went crazy after the National Victory Garden Program was announced. Seeds, tools, and even quote-unquote victory fertilizer were hawked with abandon. Um, Newspapers in 1942 especially are full of these types of ads if you know, if you want to go take a look, um, 1942 is the key year for the most, um, exciting victory garden ads. Um, and really it's very similar to now with the pandemic. I've seen things marketed as like, you know, with the pandemic theme in mind, um, of, you know, disinfecting and um and and protecting yourself from the virus so this it was the same with this uh victory garden where everything was labeled victory garden and all of a sudden it was different and it's exactly what you needed for your garden uh like i mentioned about the farm journal and farmer's wife magazine they had this garden column with endless tips and advice. And their column was called Your Garden and Mine. Besides that, in the March 1942 issue of Farm Journal, it has this really cool article about farm victory gardens. This is where I got the story for the preacher's garden from the last episode. But I wanted to read this little bit uh, from the article because um, it it brings up some really interesting things. The National Victory Garden Program, now only two months old, has gone into action. State garden conferences have been held here and there, and many local garden clubs have met and reshaped their plans where necessary to help guide new gardeners. Essence of the program as it relates to farm families is not just more food, but gardens so planned that there will be no deficiencies in the diet. More farm gardens are asked for so that more of the vegetable and fruit crops grown commercially and put up in canneries and packing houses can be used for men in service. Better planned gardens are asked for so that the health of the farm family can benefit from a variety of vegetables and fruits to provide the proper balance of protective vitamins and minerals year-round. The garden program even suggests the use of a vitamin chart when planning the garden, and the idea is good. Seed catalogs ought to carry such a chart. With less labor available and hardly enough time to do other farm work, some gardens are likely to be neglected after planting. A garden cultivator can help a lot in keeping weeds down. That's one piece of farm equipment given a relatively high manufacturing quota for 1942. The allotment is 111% of the 1940 calendar year. So I really like that the garden program suggests that people use a vitamin chart when planning their garden. And then also that garden cultivator was given higher priority for manufacturing to help people out. So that's that's really cool to know that they were thinking of not just the big farms, they were also thinking about the smaller gardeners. Along the same lines of the model Victory Garden in Boston, uh, I came across this article in uh, those from New Jersey that had a realistic window display depicting a Victory Garden with actual plants tools, and a mannequin woman dressed in coveralls with a hoe in hand. 
Um, I, I'm sure there were many other instances of this type of thing that was modeling a garden for people. Because if you're not a gardener, you've never thought about gardening, where are you going to start? You wouldn't even know the questions to ask or like what to do. Um, having something visual, you know, that's really inspiring. I mean, you can see the tools that they put in the display. They can see what was planted. Um, they can see even like <laughs> the proper clothes to wear. <laughs> I don't know if that was the problem, but um, it's just very fascinating that these displays were created. And I, I've really enjoyed looking at them. Another cool aspect that was geared towards these civilian gardeners were gardening contests. My favorite one is the Green Thumb National Garden Contest. And the mascot for this particular garden contest was Mickey Mouse. He's holding a hoe and sporting a green thumb. And this was the official emblem. There's a 3V 3-V in the background with the words vegetables, vitamins, vitality. I also found in the Honolulu Star Bulletin, they had this announcement of the winners of the Chunhoon Markets Victory Vegetable Contest. And this was in November of 1942. I also found a newspaper application form for a Victory Garden Contest in Detroit, Michigan. You could enter a farm vegetable garden, an urban vegetable garden, home grounds garden, whether you did the work yourself or hired maintenance workers, a school garden, a junior garden for under age 18, 4-H club member garden, and there was a special entry for Michigan Horticultural Society members only, a trailer camp vegetable garden, and a vegetable garden in an industrial plot. So these were all different categories you could enter under. I think that's really cool. A trailer camp vegetable garden. That's awesome. If you'd like to see the actual Green Thumb National Garden Contest entry booklet, you it is available online. I'm so excited that this is available for you. Uh, you can download it. I will have the link on my blog, of course. <laughs> and, um, and you can take a look at it. It's so awesome. I really love seeing these famous characters um, used in a propaganda kind of manner. I just love that they used Mickey Mouse for the official emblem. I think for obvious reasons, they used it to appeal to people, especially kids. They really wanted to get kids involved in the gardening effort. And Mickey Mouse was definitely a help, I'm sure. There was also some encouragement to get more seeds into the, into the hands of the public. Uh, and in 1945, the American Seed Company from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, had a marketing program where people could sell seeds for Victory Gardens and get a prize. All they had to do was sell one 40-pack seed order, and they could choose from a variety of prizes from, like, 20 husky chicks, a 32-piece set of dishes, a Gene Autry guitar, a chemistry set, a camp stove, a Falcon camera, and a lot more. And I saw this uh, advertisement in Farm Journal and Farmer's Wife magazine, February 1945. <laughs> yes, I do love this magazine. And they had so many amazing articles for Victory Gardens. I will always sing the praises of Farm Journal. If you ever come across a copy, snatch it up because they are just chock full of amazingness. <laughs> all right, so that's kind of all the cheery fun stuff <laughs> for gardening. But you know, of course, there's some problems. We got to talk about the problems. Um, what if you didn't have any space or land to grow a garden? Well, they had answers for that. There were community garden plots, just like today. They also had ads in the newspaper calling for people to donate land and also people offering up land for people to garden, especially vacant lots. So if you had some land and you weren't using it for anything, you know, you could place an ad in the paper saying, hey, I've got this land. Please garden on it. So examples of places where Victory Gardens could be found. There were many places where Victory Gardens could be found. And this is a very interesting aspect of Victory Gardens. I think people like to hear about 
because there are some very interesting places. In the May 3rd, 1943 issue of Life magazine, they have this awesome article about Victory Gardens. It's entitled Victory Gardens. They are springing up in strange nooks and crannies all over the U.S. Of course, they've got some fantastic pictures, which I will be posting on my blog. So you can see you've really got to take a look because they've got some amazing images of nuns hoeing and a bunch of girls all in lines from uh, Jane Addams High School in Portland, Oregon, hoeing. And and they're putting those little paper tent covers over the seedlings. That is awesome. All right. So let me read from this article. It says, after a spiteful flurry of winter in the Middle West, spring skipped around the corner last week to bring a little ray of sun to 18 million U.S. Victory Gardens. Hand in leg with spring came the silly season and the usual crop of pictures showing pretty girls in becoming shorts. But this year, limbs are being bared in the interests of the greatest outdoor fad since miniature golf, stymied pedestrians, traffic on city corners. Every unprotected piece of ground was being dug up for Victory Gardens. In Boston's Copley Square, and in the Portland, Oregon Zoo, in Chicago's Arlington Racetrack, and in the Wesley College campus, in New York's Schwab Estate, and in the Naval Air Station at Olathe, Kansas. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. <laughs> Everybody was busy tucking seeds to bed in the mo moist spring soil. Movie stars, soldiers, admirals, airline hostesses, nuns, and prisoners. Governor Warren of California had a vegetable plot in Sacramento, Diana Hopkins was raking up the backyard of the White House, and Bishop Manning was tending his new garden at St. John's Cathedral. On these pages, in this article, are some new amateur farmers cheerfully working to increase the nation's food output. Many are unaware that although gardening victories are planned in April, the real heat of battle does not develop until July, when the gardener must struggle against incessant weeds, bugs, the hot sun, and laziness. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. It shows a picture of the plaza in front of San Francisco City Hall and that it has been converted into a victory garden. Uh, also in downtown New Orleans, just a block from Canal Street, it shows a man that has a flourishing victory garden that he started eight months ago from May 1943. Uh, it is producing cabbage, lettuce, tomatoes, and radishes. Then there are some nuns of St. Patrick's Home for the Aged in the Bronx using hoes, rakes, and shovels to prepare their garden. And they expect to raise most of the home's vegetables for summer. At a swank townhouse in Los Angeles, Jane Weeks, a tenant, and Bert Brown, swimming instructor, take care of the vegetables now growing where flowers once reared their lovely heads. And last is a picture of prisoners in the Cook County Jail, Chicago, they tilled the soil in the Walden Yard. The prisoners cannot plant corn, which might provide a hiding place when tall. So I've seen that referenced another place where the prisoners in are able to plant gardens, but they're not allowed to plant corn because they could hide in it. Very interesting. I know there's lots of stories of crazy places, you know, people planted gardens. And oh, I have a picture in the last uh, blog post that shows a garden in a rail yard. Um, and that looks like it's a very bleak picture, but it it's a really good demonstration. Like people had gardens at their workplaces. They had them at schools. They had them at churches. They, they really put them so many places. Uh, one other problem to mention that I kind of touched on before is that there were scarce materials. Metal was scarce, so tools, you know, kind of were a little harder to come by. Seeds, there were some shortages of seeds. And then fertilizer. Fertilizer was really important. Uh, a lot of farmers used the bulk of what was available. Um, so getting fertilizer was a little bit trickier. But despite these problems, there were a lot of garden successes. Uh, the January 1943 Farm Journal reported that that little patch of ground that supplied fresh fruit and vegetables for your table and for canning last summer has become one of the most talked about places in the country. It is the very spot on which a major conflict of the war is being decided, the battle for food, health, and security. The battle is going the right way, too. Last year, there were 5 million farm food patches like yours. Quite a few of them were on farms that had never grown a garden before. Besides, there were 10 million gardens in towns and suburban areas last year. 
These 15 million gardens comprised the 1942 Victory Garden Campaign. It was a success, too, because it was aided by good weather and a lot of enthusiasm. Nationwide was interest in gardening. Likewise, the rewards. Kansas had twice as many gardens last year as in 1941, and the biggest share of the increase was on farms. Ohio had 10,000 more farm gardens than in 1941. In Maine, there was an increase of 36,500 farm gardens. In California, where commercial growers produce fresh fruits and vegetables in abundance, nevertheless, the number of farm gardens almost doubled to total 60,000. Ahead of any official statement on gardening, it is freely predicted in Washington that the goal for 1943 may very well be a garden on every farm. That is 6,096,799 farm gardens. That would assure every farm family of a supply of health-protecting foods right at the door. It would relieve the strain on transportation and release both fresh and processed vegetables and fruits for our armed forces and our allies, and to city folks who can't grow their own food. Also, the town and suburban folks who have open sunny space and fertile soil, available either at home or in convenient community gardens, will be asked to grow all the vegetables they can, particularly tomatoes, leafy green vegetables, and yellow vegetables. Our armed forces and our allies have already spoken for half of our 1943 output of canned vegetables. In short, the Victory Garden Campaign in 1943 calls for bigger and better gardens, and more of them. The farm garden will be asked to produce all the vegetables needed for the family's entire yearly needs. To do that, the garden will have to grow vegetables from early spring to hard freezing weather in fall and in the south all winter long. Local market gardeners probably will do well to grow more for nearby needs because supplies which in the past have been hauled long distances may not be available, particularly such winter vegetables as head lettuce, blanched celery, artichokes, asparagus, cucumbers, cauliflower, green peppers, and eggplant, or other vegetables that are not easily grown by amateur gardeners. So this article points out that while there there was a huge success in this Victory Garden program, that they couldn't stop. They needed to do more. And I mean, this article focuses on farm gardens, but I mean, it points out suburban growers as well, that everyone everyone growing everything was so important um, that we just they just needed to keep doing it keep gardening and I also really like that it points out that there are some plants that are difficult to grow like celery and it mentions eggplant and a few other things this brings up this very funny article I found in Life magazine from the June 14th 1943 issue It's called, speaking of pictures, these show that monkeys are not good gardeners. And it has a series of photographs of this monkey with a gardening tool attempting to dig in the dirt. (laughs) I'm not sure why they thought like to give a monkey a garden tool and see what he would do. (laughs) But this particular monkey um, was called Cookie. And it says, Cookie's performance will seem painfully familiar to a great many victory gardeners. They can see themselves as Cookie sees them. Standing out in the heat, toiling with a trowel, chained to the good earth. Faced now with weeds and bugs and summer drought, many a reluctant gardener realizes how deeply he was deluded by his springtime enthusiasm. From these photographs, he can draw a moral to wit that it is easier to make a monkey out of a victory gardener then make a victory gardener out of a monkey. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yes, yes, so true. I think I fall under this category. <laughs> because, you know, just those springtime dreams of this beautiful garden, but then the bugs and the weather and the weeds, they just conquer the soul <laughs> of the amateur gardener. Ugh. <laughs> uh, I yeah, I gave up like September, late August. <laughs> when it's hot, I just don't want to. <laughs> don't want a garden. But you know what? I this also reminds me um when I was going to college, I rode the bus to campus and I passed this lawn early every morning I went to campus that was immaculate, just gorgeous. I mean, the grass was always perfect and just the landscaping was amazing. I mean, it was a simple, small house. And occasionally on these mornings, I would see a, an old woman out there on her knees in her house dress with a pair of scissors trimming little pieces of grass. And 
I was instantly a fan <laughs> of hers. I was like, this is why this garden, I mean, this yard was amazing. It's because she put that time and love and effort into making it beautiful. And she was probably out there every morning working on this garden, just little by little. And I think that's a really great lesson to us um, aspiring gardeners that you really just have to put in the time, even if it's 15 minutes every morning or whenever we can have beautiful gardens. If we just put in that effort, don't let the day slip by and then the weeds <laughs> take over. <laughs> um, that's always stayed with me. And yeah, it's a really good lesson. I aspire to be that lady <laughs> someday, I hope. This kind of brings us to the last topic that I saved for last because it is the most fascinating to me. And that is that gardens were not just for the food, which of course was very important for the war effort, but it was also for the morale. Um, I've talked a little bit about morale before, like when it came to food items, you know, like ice cream and things like that. But gardens for morale was finally understood in World War II time. And I think this is one of the most fascinating aspects of Victory Gardens. So unlike in World War I, during World War II, growing flowers was encouraged for their beautification and morale building value. There's this photograph of my alma mater, Utah State, that is one of my favorites. It was hanging, it's hanging in the student center and it shows a man plowing up Old Main Hill, which is a pretty steep hill um, that I had to slog up every day. Um, but it was, they were plowing it up for a World War I victory garden. The sense that I get with World War I gardens was more desperation. They needed food so badly and there was a shortage of grain and a lot of other things. And so it was really essential not that gardens during World War II weren't essential, but it was, I feel like it was just on a different level of essential. And so they plowed up everything. Like they just put gardens like once again in crazy places. But something that they learned during World War II, they didn't need to plow up golf courses. They didn't need to plow up, you know, medians between in roads. I mean, there, there was plenty of land to to farm in um, and to have a garden in. So I came across this article in the Harrisburg Sunday Courier from 19, April 1942. And it says, the present Victory Garden program is somewhat similar to the days of World War I, when backyard gardeners did their bit in tune to the slogan, food will win the war. However, it is hoped that many of the blisters and unnecessary sacrifices made during that effort will be eliminated in the current program. In many instances, park lawns, golf courses, and public recreation areas were plowed up and planted to potatoes. Flowers were forgotten to make room for vegetables, and gardens were attempted in congested big city locations where success was obviously impossible. This practice is now being discouraged, for there is plenty of land available for vegetable gardens without interfering with the growing of flowers and marring landscape beauty. And I think this is a very important distinction between the two wars. We learned a lot from World War One, and this was one of the things that we learned was that flowers and landscaping, the beauty of those things was important to keep and preserve. The vegetables were health for our bodies, but the flowers and the beautiful landscaping was food for our souls. One newspaper article was titled, Home Gardens and Morale, Lawns, Shrubs and Flowers, as well as Vegetables are Recognized in the Defense Program. And I love that they recognize the healing effects of beauty found in flowers and shrubs and trees, and they made efforts to protect them for the morale of the people. I just really love that. In the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle from February 1943, Dr. Margaret Weil, family life specialist of the College of Home Economics at Cornell University, stated, quote, for national morale building, you couldn't ask anything better than the Victory Garden. As a project for the whole family, I can't think of anything that has greater possibilities when it comes to working and sharing together. There's nothing quite like a garden to bring neighbors together, and I believe it extends beyond that to bringing peoples of the world together, close quote. <laughs> I really like that too, that 
you know, gardens bring people together. When you're gardening together, you know, you're enjoying the outdoors and working towards a common purpose. And, you know, as communities, they were working towards a common purpose and even in their little individual gardens. Um, I have this um, health magazine from April of 1942. It's called Health, a doctor's magazine for everybody. And in this uh, article called Getting the Most Out of Your Garden, it says, take daily exercise in your garden. Gardening, in contrast with competitive games, is conducive to a serene thoughtfulness that is good for the soul. Um, So I like that too, that they point out that the exercise you gain from gardening is conducive to serene thoughtfulness. I can attest to that. I really loved gardening as a kid because I could just kind of zone out and be alone and just think my thoughts. And I loved weeding as a kid. I just loved it. I would even weed in the rain and I didn't care. (laughs) Um, I guess I was a very muddy child, but that's, I just, it's just important to point out that they thought these things uh, about Victory Gardens. It wasn't just about the vegetables. Today's cookbook feature is Victory Cookbook. How to Eat Well, Live Well, Plan Balanced Meals Under Food Rationing. This booklet was free with the purchase of Lysol because disinfecting and food goes hand in hand. (laughs) That's what someone said um, when I posted this on Instagram. I love that. So this cookbook is the very first ration cookbook I purchased when I began my ration cookbook collection. So it's near and dear to my heart. On the cover is a woman showing her a huge platter of something she has made. (laughs) They look like fish molds on a beds of lettuce. Um, Underneath the caption, oh, it says photo courtesy of McCall's Magazine. Nice. So um, in the caption, it says simple recipes that save ration points show you how to feed your family well without scarce and expensive foods. Every housewife's job is to maintain her family's health and spirits. This book is published to promote healthy eating and healthy living in every home. Thanks, Lysol. You're the best. Inside, it also says healthy eating and healthy living are more important than ever. Every day you read the urgent warning that Uncle Sam needs us strong. It is the patriotic job of every wife and mother to keep her household well, well nourished, and well prepared for the strain of extra work and wartime worries. Good food is a vital part of strengthening a nation for war. A healthy home must be a clean home, too. That's why the makers of Lysol Disinfectant offer this timely book for homemakers. The texts matter on nutrition. The suggestions for balanced meals, the recipes have all been prepared by Demetria Taylor, nationally known home economics consultant. The rules for thorough cleaning, the use of a disinfectant in the kitchen, bathroom, sick room, etc. are by the staff of Lysol Disinfectant. The thing I really like about this little cookbook pamphlet is that it has a section on one dish dinners for housewives who work. So really practical. I mean, they don't have that many recipes. Like this section has five recipes, but they have a nice variety though. They've got a section for soups full of vim, vigor, and vitamins. Oh, gotta love the alliteration. Um, And what's really cool is each section has, you know, an introduction to it. It talks about and teaches you about why each thing is so important. Um... There is another section on main dishes that spare the ration coupons, making meat rations stretch, fish dishes that save ration points, eggs are good meat substitutes, get acquainted with soybeans and peanuts. And then it goes into um, some of the the food wheel, (laughs) I should say, uh, of nutrition. So green and yellow vegetables for vitamin A. So that's in its own section. Then leafy vegetables provide vitamins, iron, and bulk. Bread and cereals for energy. Citrus, fruits, and tomatoes are put together in their own group. And um, I really love the recipe in here for Florida milkshake. It's super good. Milk and cheese for calcium. And desserts that spare sugar. And then a very helpful section on keeping your home clean with Lysol. So um, I wanted to focus on 
vegetables or fruits that could be found in the garden, like recipes that could use those things. So I went to the green and yellow vegetables section. I made two recipes from here. One was for Vermont sweet potatoes. The other really cool thing about this cookbook is that each recipe has a version for three portions and a version for six portions, which I found very handy because some of these recipes you're like, I don't know if my family will like that. And so, or if you just have less people to feed or if you just want to make it for yourself, having the smaller portion recipe already calculated out for you is so handy. Um, and it's for every single recipe in here, which is just really nice. Thanks, Lysol. <laughs> so the Vermont sweet potatoes, holiday season's coming up. So I thought, hey, this is really cool. I have I have grown sweet potatoes in my garden um, before in the past, and I really loved growing them. Uh, unfortunately, um, the weeds took over before I could really find them, and then the chickens found the rest of them. So whenever they got really excited about something, I was like, oh, they found another sweet potato, and I'd go <laughs> steal it from them. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'd like to plant sweet potatoes again. So I really wanted to try this dish. No one in my family likes sweet potatoes besides me, but honey, thanks for, um, <laughs> for trying them anyway, when I make them, it uses three medium sweet potatoes, some hot milk, butter, salt, a dash of pepper, a dash of nutmeg, um, some orange rind, and then melted butter and maple syrup. So what do you do? You... Um, boil the potatoes. What I did, I peeled them first and then boiled them like you would like making mashed potatoes. Um, but they suggest to boil the sweet potatoes, then peel and mash. But I just, I found it was a lot easier to peel them first. So you mash it with the hot milk, the butter, the salt, pepper, and the nutmeg, and then the orange rind. Um, you put it in a dish, then you put a pat of butter on top, or I guess melted butter in this case and maple syrup. So, oh, I have to mention, I did not have butter. I actually ran out, which I never do. <laughs> I was so shocked. But I did have margarine that I purchased way at the beginning of pandemic time um, when butter was scarce. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do in wartime spirit, buy some margarine. And hey, look, it came in handy <laughs> for a wartime recipe. So I did use margarine for all, all of this. So you put the butter on top of this mashed concoction, and then you pour this scant tablespoon of maple syrup over the top. Then you bake it. And I was very interested about how this would taste. Um, because normally, like if you, you go to find a modern sweet potato recipe for Thanksgiving or something. It usually has a ton of butter, ton of brown sugar, marshmallows sometimes, and sometimes pineapple and nuts. <laughs> Some weird, more strange recipes out there. So I was very interested how this would turn out with just one tablespoon of maple syrup. And let me tell you guys, this was so good. You really got the savory sweet aspect of the sweet potatoes, which a lot of people like. Um, with that spice of the nutmeg in there. And then the maple syrup on top, just, I mean, you get that maple flavor and then it just accentuates the sweet, natural sweetness of the sweet potato. Guys, this was like so well seasoned. I, I don't think I've ever had <laughs> sweet potatoes like this. It was really good. So I had some for a snack and it was tasty. I think I'll be the only one eating it, but that's okay. It, I made the three portion serving, so <laughs> I don't have a ton sitting around. Yeah, really good. Uh, the next recipe I made was for corn Mexicali. I don't know if this is supposed to be a combination of Mexico, California or something, but it is a corn dish, obviously corn Mexicali. And I also made the three portions serving. It calls for um, one and a half cups of yellow corn cut from the cob. I used frozen corn because that's what I had. A tablespoon of butter, uh, aka margarine, <laughs> that's what I had. Um, a tablespoon of chopped green pepper, tablespoon of chopped pimento, quarter teaspoon salt, some chili powder, and water. So you heat the corn in the butter margarine add the remaining ingredients and simmer 10 15 minutes and it's done so i had to make a little substitutions here well kind of 
I didn't have green pepper. I had a yellow pepper, but I think the colors for this recipe are really important. So the green pepper and the red pimento really are striking against the yellow corn. So yellow pepper, boring, you know? So what I did, I did have jalapenos for my garden. And so I thought, hey, you know, green jalapenos in here sounds great. So I cut them up and put them in and they really did look pretty and they added a bit of a kick. So that was actually really nice. I had a jar of pimentos. I've been hanging on to this jar because, you know, I do ration cooking. So there's a lot of recipes that use pimento out there. So why not have it on hand? But I hadn't used it yet. So yay, I got to use it this time. Threw that in there and it's so pretty. The yellow and green and red together look awesome. Heated it up and oh guys <laughs> this also was so good it was perfectly seasoned once again thank you 1940s you are awesome uh I think maybe I tend to over season things I just like a lot of flavor in there I mean it doesn't have garlic like you know in a modern recipe it doesn't have onions I really was tempted to throw some in there but I didn't and I don't think it needs it this corn really shines with the pepper and pimento um, and that chili powder, just a half teaspoon and the quarter teaspoon salt go such a long way for this recipe. So highly recommend five out of five. <laughs> I will be putting both of these recipes on my blog so you can try them too. Today's story highlight comes from Marianne Scarupa about her mother, Mary Carlo Magno. She says, my mom is now 91, born 1928 in New Jersey. She was the fifth of 11 children to Italian immigrants. Oddly, she says she doesn't remember not having enough food. Her parents came from farming backgrounds and my grandfather was an excellent gardener. During this time, they rented and then owned their home. In all cases, my grandfather always planted a garden of vegetables mixed with flowers. My grandmother canned vegetables and fruits and, of course, made copious amounts of tomato sauce and paste. She also baked all their bread in a neighbor's backyard wood-fired oven. Because of the large family, she mixed, kneaded the dough in a galvanized tub of the kind kids bob for apples. In exchange for use of the oven, neighbors would give the oven owner baked bread. She also made pasta at home, particularly on Sunday mornings before Mass. She would spread a clean sheet over her own bed and lay the fresh pasta on it to dry in the morning. Early afternoon on Sunday, it was cooked, as that was the traditional time for a large meal on Sunday. Unfortunately, I have no real recipes for my grandmother, as I don't think she really used them. Some aunts and uncles that tried to write out recipes had to content themselves with measurements such as a handful of milk. My mom says her mother could bake a very large cake with one egg, which helped save money. My grandparents also made their own sausage and sun-dried tomatoes. My grandfather saved seeds to replant in dried herbs. One of my prized possessions is a small jar of dried basil with a handwritten paper inside in beautiful script, which says Vazinagal, which I believe is a dialect for the Italian word basilico. The only thing my mom remembers with dissatisfaction is the yellow powder they mixed into fat to make fake yellow butter. Thanks, Marianne, for sharing your story with us. I really like all the details about how your grandfather ha always had a vegetable garden and mixed them with flowers and that, you know, how she made her pasta and laid it out to dry um, on her bed. And I there's so many stories about children whose chore it was to mix the yellow powder into the fat to make fake yellow butter. Um, she's referring to probably the margarine uh, that came white and you had to mix in the tablet of uh, yellow dye to make it look like butter. And this story is a really great example of uh, food ways on the home front. Thanks again for sharing, Marianne. All right, well, that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining me and if you or your family have American Homefront stories, I would love to be able to share them here on my podcast. To share your story, go to victorykitchenpodcast.com and click on share a homefront story. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, we have a lot of fun on there and you can see behind the scenes and um, research progress. My handle is Victory Kitchen Podcast. And I would love your support, which keeps this podcast going. To do so, go to anchor.fm slash Sarah Creviston Lee and click on support. 
Thank you so much for listening and I'll talk to you next time. Bye.